welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. So my guest this week on On the Record is Amir Beg, CEO of Article, um, a very rapidly growing furniture, e-commerce furniture. Do, do you prefer to be referred to as a retailer or a retail? Because I've heard you described as a retailer, a retailer slash manufacturer um, or direct to consumer uh, seller. How do you describe Article? Uh, Bill, I mean, retailer is fine. Direct to consumer is also true. Brand is also true. Um, you know, ultimately, uh, um, you know, it, it dovetails into a bit of our vision in terms of what we're trying to do. And the way we summarize that is to is to is to provide the easiest way for people to make their spaces look beautiful. Um, so we see ourselves evolving more into a service and convenience play that ties it all together. Um, but I mean, we're still physically selling products and retailing products and it's direct to consumer. So all of those definitions are true. Explain to me what you mean by a service and convenience play. What would that, how would that look different from what you're doing now? Yeah. So, I mean, if you, if you look at the process that, people go today um, if uh, to to furnish their space as well to make their rooms look beautiful uh, to make their rooms look like the way they want them to look if you look at that process today um, you know it involves um, searching for inspiration uh, getting ideas browsing catalogs uh, Pinterest all those different sites um, getting ideas from interior designers potentially shopping around from uh, shop to shop, picking a product here, picking a product there, maybe picking a bunch of products. And, you know, probably six months down the road, you've got your space and your room looking like the way you want it to. And um, the way we look at it is how can we make this process simple, easy, fast, and really make uh, giant leaps, breakthrough leaps in the amount of convenience, the time to furnish well, um, uh, for people to get their spaces looking like they want to. Um, so for me, uh, the nirvana state, I imagine, would be that, Bill, you take out your phone, you, you know, you take a picture of that, that bunker office that, <laughs> that you're, uh, uh, you're in right now. We understand you. We know that you're into maybe um, classical Chesterfields and, uh, and you have a certain like for colors and taste and we inspire you with uh, personalized uh, uh, inspiration photography that in that space tailored to your needs and you go, I love this, I'd like it. You click buy and imagine the same day or the next day that happens. So really simplifying this whole process um, uh, and so, and if you contrast with that, with the process that you go through today, uh, that encapsulates the overall end vision of what we're trying to do and uh, trying to create. Um, of course, there are many components uh, around technology, data, product, uh, delivery, service. All of it has to come together to sh- to, to deliver on the simplistic vision that uh, that I've just narrated. Um, 
but hopefully that gives you a bit of a sense of what we're trying to do here. Um, I find it a little Orwellianly uh, unnerving that you actually know that I do like Chesterfields. Um, <laughs> I'm wondering how, how you know that. But um, in all seriousness, <laughs> how do you get to a place where you have that kind of information? Now, I know one of the things that, that characterizes um, Article is you work on or have historically worked on short production runs. You test um, you know, what works, what doesn't, and move very quickly um, from what you have to what your customer wants. Um, but mm -hmm. as we look at article today, there's a very curated vision. It is typically very contemporary, very clean. Um, there's a huge leap to go from that to Chesterfields. And the vision that you're describing is something that is um, a much broader stylistic audience. How do you move from where you are to that place? Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously the the, uh, the the vision is ambitious and it's long, it's really long term, and it is far from where the reality is for us today. So, but it does speak to the direction uh, that we're taking, and 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 because of that direction, our uh, uh, there's a lot of aspects that show up in our offering today. Um, uh, that uh, are a manifestation from pursuing that direction. For example, um, we have this uh, uh, we have this strong focus on reducing uh, um, time to deliver and increasing speed of delivery. Uh, we have this huge focus on making sure that when the delivery happens, that process is convenient and hassle-free for you. I mean, we've launched our own delivery service in four cities now. Um, we, uh, if you called an article customer service line, um, our average response time is five seconds and six seconds. And every call and every email goes into our data analytics group to figure out why was the, the customer have to contact us to begin with anyways. What were we not offering uh, as part of the site design and the site user experience that could have answered that question for the customer before they needed to, to reach out to us? So if you ever shop at Article and experience the details, uh, you'll you'll see some of those details shine through, um, and they stem from this obsessive focus around this end-to-end, -end, absolutely simple, easy, convenient customer experience. Um, uh, and as far as how do we make that uh, migration or how do we realize that vision? Well, that's a long journey. Uh, it involves advancement in a lot of areas. Uh, uh, it involves advancement on the product side, the supply chain side, the delivery side, the technology side, the data side, the interior design automation side. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of aspects to it um, uh, that have to come together uh, for us to realize this vision, but I do believe that is the future, whether we are able to successfully realize it, uh, or whether somebody else, uh, does, I, uh, and uh, the, the future will be click furnished, um, that the service understands you, your taste, and makes it really simple and easy for you to get to what your space needs to be, uh, really, really fast and in an easy way. I'm, Curious, and I, I know that you originally, uh, early, in the early days of your site, you kind of shared information about who your suppliers were and um, 
because there was some overlap with some existing folks in the industry, you generally don't, I presume, like to talk about who supplies your product, but you are sourcing overseas, um, which means yes. a certain amount of time on the water. How do you manage to still be respond? It sounds like an incredibly responsive model. You seem to, to take yeah. action based on what your consumers will or will not buy very quickly. And yet you still have to deal with significant logistical issues and significant time issues. Um, how do you manage that? Uh, so first of all, if we look at our network today, we have uh, fulfillment centers in Seattle, LA, New Jersey, Jacksonville, with one coming online in Toronto uh, later this quarter. Um, and then uh, we're planning on scaling into even more fulfillment centers uh, next year. Um, and uh, so it requires it requires some diligent and sophisticated supply chain management, uh, inventory planning, um, uh, lean supply chain principles, reducing replenishment times, uh, supplier postponement agreements, uh, going looking further downstream the supply chain, um, and uh, ordering just the right amount of inventory into the right places, getting better at forecasting, more importantly than getting at forecasting, reducing time to replenish, and we source overseas today, but that's not necessarily always going to be the future, uh, Bill. Uh, I mean, we're, you know, we're in talks with uh, um, suppliers locally onshore today. Uh, for us, the supply chain will evolve to be global. Um, the furniture industry is interesting. I think you probably have a lot more knowledge about it, Bill. Not probably for sure have a lot more knowledge about it than I do, but. Um, uh, Lean manufacturing principles, uh, which the auto industry uh, brought, uh, haven't been adopted wide, in a widespread manner and in a ubi ubiquitous manner in, in the furniture supply chain. So we see a lot of opportunity there um, to, to partner with our suppliers and transform them uh, to more of a lean single piece flows. Um, companies like Lazy Boy, I think, uh, do a very good job of that. Um, so there's a there's a lot of elements involved, and then obviously that's just getting it to the fulfillment center, getting it from the fulfillment center into our customers' homes. There's a lot of logistics, including line hauls and final mile, that are involved. A huge part of our operation is dedicated towards managing that area well. Um, so it's a big beast. It really is, um, and it also sounds like just in in looking at what I could could find on the the founding of the company, a lot of times when you read about these kinds of startups, it, it the story always seems to start with somebody needed furniture in college, somebody was furnishing their first apartment. Um, it seems like you kind of came a, or or the the group of you who founded this company um, came at it almost from a business perspective from the very beginning, in that you identified. Um, a logistical and pricing gap in the marketplace that could have been furniture. Maybe it could have been another product area. Um, yeah. So, so how, yeah. I mean, was it just a matter of, yeah, this price gap, this, this um, margin gap exists in furniture uh, and that was how you decided? Yeah, I can elaborate on that, Bill. Uh, our startup stories, uh, startup story does not revolve around uh, some frustrating experience that triggered uh, 
an intense amount of motivation to to fix it. <laughs> um, the story goes, uh, a friend of mine that uh, went to computer engineering school with me in University of Alberta in, in, in Edmonton, Canada, he phoned me with this idea. Um, and the idea is relatively simple uh, in the sense that use the internet as a direct-to-consumer sales channel and on the back end, um, really vertically integrate the supply chain to not be working with third parties either for fulfillment um, and then also just um, um, going deeper in the supply chain on the manufacturing side as well. And you do the combination of that and you unlock value in the chain. And then you can package that value uh, back to the customer uh, in the form of a better product, lower price, better service, more convenience, faster delivery, all of that, uh, or combination of it. Um, and obviously we now know that this model has come to be known as the direct consumer model or digitally native vertically branded model, uh, whatever, there's a few different venture capital terms for it. But the model in theory makes a lot of sense. It does unlock value. And uh, my friend saw potential in that. Uh, this was back in 2011. Uh, it appealed, it resonated, we looked at it, and as we started looking at areas where um, this model could be applied um, to unlock value for the customer, uh, furniture was just very, very apparent, and especially, um, uh, especially I want to say, good quality furniture, uh, more mid to high end furniture in that area, we saw a big amount of value unlock possibilities. The big question was, would people buy $1,000, $1,500, dollars $2,000 purchases online uh, without sight unseen uh, for the model to work? Uh, but, we, but we reasoned that the incentive was strong enough to warrant the risk, and then over time we can build trust in the brand uh, that 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 risk perception goes away, and by by the way, the risk is effectively nothing because we give full refunds minus the forty nine dollar delivery cost and pickup charge, um, and we even allow free exchanges. But it still can be time and hassle. So we reasoned there was a plausible business model here, and the industry is massive. Uh, it excited us to uh, to uh, wander down this uh, direction and. Uh, a few tweaks and pivots later, uh, uh, our beliefs got convicted, uh, we, and then we kept on. Then from there on, it's been a journey of continuous improvement uh, across uh, a lot of dimensions for us. Um, so that's that's how our journey and story is. So you <laughs> long-winded answer, but short answer, yes. It, it started from seeing a problem that could be solved better. Um, excuse me. When you considered the challenges of getting consumers to buy a product at that price, effectively sight unseen or from just the photo, were there some things that you strategically utilized early on to kind of mitigate that fear? I mean, one of them was the return policy, obviously. Um, were there some other things in terms of how you presented the product or how you described the product. What was what were some of the, the strategies that you took to mitigate consumer concern about not being able to see, feel, and touch prior to purchase? Yeah, uh, I mean, return, uh, very uh, trusting, generous return and exchange policies certainly help. 
Um, I mean, we have an obsessive focus, I would say, on the accuracy of information uh, with the photography, the uh, videos, the uh, the uh, information about the product and the free swatches and the fast delivery of swatches and all of that uh, to make the customer comfortable. Um, I mean, we have our own photo studio with multiple bays. I'm sitting in one of them right now. Um, and uh, um, our photography team is has their procedures and uh, we look at it from in different lighting conditions for different screens, different screen uh, brightness, uh, et cetera, to make sure that the reflection of the product, its color is accurate. There's a lot of detail. Is the sizing perspective correct? Um, and uh, and, that, and then, by the way, that's just a start. Then uh, you look at your returns and the customer feedback, and you need to have continuous improvement loops uh, and channels feeding back and doing rapid iteration of evolving the online content and the site features to 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 make sure that uh, um, that customer confidence is built. And over time, you start integrating social proof, so people upload. Uh, products of uh, pictures of um, our products in their spaces. So that starts giving people more context. Uh, um, and uh, above everything, it, above everything, I think it goes, luckily there's some people for which the burden of proof isn't that high. They take a chance uh, when you get started in business and they become your customers and those those people are really, really valuable, I think, in this world. Uh, they, they fuel innovation. Um, but then a brand must deliver on the promise. Uh, are we truly delivering great design, uh, which is built to last at a great price uh, with amazing service and convenience and fast delivery? You got to come through. So just architecting the whole thing to to come through on the promise is the really important thing to have that snowball effect to make sure that that trust gets built and reinforced. And, you know, now, I mean, we obviously screw up from time to time, uh, we'll make mistakes, but uh, it's heartening for us to see when our own customers come to defend us <laughs> when that happens. And, and, and full transparency conversations happen on social media. It's a different world. You really, um, brands are held accountable uh, much more than they were before, uh, which I think is just great. It's beautiful. As long as you're comfortable and prepared for that up front, right? Yeah. Uh, but, uh, uh, I mean, it just enforces, it forces you to build something great. Uh, and uh, and if that's not what you're in it for, then uh, other than maybe paying the bills, what's the point? Mm-hmm. Now, um in, in looking at some of the, as I was doing some of the research preparing for this, two of the things that you seem to have been very focused on from the beginning um, are profitability and limiting the amount of uh, VC or PE money that you brought in, uh, which is a little bit different from some of the others in the space. What was the strategy mm -hmm. behind that and, and how were you able to, uh, to execute that? Um, well, I mean, um, the um, we we've obviously always had a strong focus. We've had a strong focus on profitability and profitable growth, and making sure we're investing capital in a disciplined manner uh, that drives a high return on capital. And that's 
um, we, uh, you know, I think that's uh, a responsibility for uh, for of any company to its shareholders, to its employees. You want to be building a sustainable business uh, to its customers. So, so that's just I, I just can't for me fathom doing it any other way. Um, what is true is that we've been able to build this with not requiring huge amounts of capital and uh, and and reached profitability earlier. Um, and uh, uh, I think I would attribute that to maybe a few factors. Um, um, one is if we're if you're able to win trust in the furniture space, uh, initial purchase order values are good. So I think you have a decent chance of making the first purchase, the cost of acquiring a customer, less than the gross margin of your first purchase. So you can have uh, build a profitable business to from the get-go. That's one aspect. Uh, I think the second aspect is um, uh, the second aspect is just being a lean company. Um, you know, back in the early days, I did everything uh, in the business, so we didn't really start out with a company with a big uh, senior team and then another team underneath it. And uh, uh, you know, we 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 managed our we managed with what we had. Uh, um, uh, so those those are a couple of factors I think that have helped us, and then I think uh, maybe some good fortune uh, that we did manage to get to product market fit in a early enough time before we ran out of runway, um, uh, and uh, maybe we were at the right place at the right time. Uh, look, there's a lot of uh, uh, luck that gets involved here too. You know, it's it's funny how many times you hear entrepreneur entrepreneurs talk about that, right? There's there's one break or another one, um, one little thing here or there that just seems to break the right way and uh, gets you in front of the right audience, or and uh, things seem to take off from there. That's true. Uh, it's it, it's very true. In my views, it would be, um, in in my views, it would not it perhaps might be a bit too overconfident or arrogant to to not give the importance of timing and luck but there's a i mean you can improve your chances by persisting longer by being smarter but i think you also kind of need the stars to align a little bit now you've grown very very rapidly uh, obviously you're a private company and you don't have to share dollar figures but even just looking at um what's been reported publicly um there was a, a target, I think, established in a, in a Forbes article of $200 million in 2018, um, and that would, would have been essentially doubling over the course of the year. What have you learned about scaling as you've grown that rapidly? And you can confirm that number if you like, um, certainly. But Yeah. Yeah, we, we we stopped going public with uh, revenue numbers, I think, about a year or two ago. Pesky uh, Press, they uh, always report build. that stuff. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, growth has still been fantastic. Uh, but um, uh, the question about lessons on scaling, the first thing I would say that I'm still learning. Um, with higher and higher scale comes a lot more complexity, and complexity kills growth. Uh, so if you want to continue to grow at a high pace at scale, uh, you, you do have to do things 
some do some things differently and do some things same, but you have to the things that you have to do the same way, you have to come up with mechanisms that work in a larger organizational context. Um, so I would say, first of all, that the learnings for me are still ongoing. Um, things that I have learned uh, include, um, you know, include the importance of building the right organizational culture. Um, I used to think of that as a bit of a fluffy word, uh, a bit intangible, difficult to wrap my mind around. It. But, uh, as companies, as as we've scaled, its importance has become uh, more and more important to me. And it's important to build something that doesn't become wall art, but it's truly lived and breathed top down in a company and it covers the values and the attributes, the behaviors, the mindsets that are really, really necessary because all of the end output and the end work that we see, it comes from the way people meet, the way people talk, the way people solve problems, the way people work with each other and codifying what works for us and scaling that. I think that's one thing that's really, really important. Um, the importance of the right senior leadership team uh, the importance of uh, an understanding of um, basically an organization needs to evolve to a state where there's multiple high-performing teams um, synergistically working towards uh, company objectives. So it, it that requires uh, people, process, um, culture, the right, uh, the right strategic management processes, the right way of looking at things. So there's a lot of learnings there. Um, uh, books and books and books worth, right? I mean, you, you could fill a library <laughs> there, with all of the things people have written on building culture. There's tons, but I suppose the, the one fundamental ingredient would be that I think if you lose, and maybe it applies especially to the founder or the CEO or the person on top uh, of it all, if you become complacent or you lose that level of commitment, then it's just not going to work because it's a it's a tough bull to wrestle down. And as long as I, my my simplistic view is, as long as that commitment level is there, you just keep on hacking away at it and you don't relent until you solve it. And if that's there, you you figure some of these things out, but it is it is heavy lifting. I'm always curious, and I've asked a number of people this question as we start to talk about scale. When you have a, a startup company, communication is very personal, right? It's three guys, five guys sitting, sitting around in an office. You want to tell somebody something, you lean over and you go, hey. Um, and then as you start to hire more people and you're not able to directly communicate. At some point, you move beyond the ability to communicate individually with each of those people. And that's where process mm -hmm. um, and, and those, you talked about value and, and the communication of those values. Can, can you share any of the things that you've learned about that, that communication process and, and how you've managed that as you started to add people and gotten beyond that level where it was just kind of leaning over to somebody and saying, hey, did, did, you, know, did you remember to pay this bill or did you remember to call that guy? Or, um, and, I, and I know there's a somewhat I, I, facetious I, examples, but. I, I think the truth is, Bill, that I don't think we manage that well. Um, I think we've got uh, a lot, a ton of improvements to make in that uh, in that direction. Um, uh, so I think we're still on that journey. 
um, I feel that uh, a of course uh, we need to create some regular mechanisms that allow uh, a lot of communication to flow. I think uh, whether it's company-wide meetings or town halls or other mechanisms, I think it's important for leaders to just generally be creating accessibility and reaching out and creating a culture where your customer care uh, um, associate or your warehouse associate feels free to come up to you and talk to you and say, hey, look, this is broken or this is how this thing needs to be better. Um, I think uh, uh, I think it's important that we put a focus as an organization to get everybody to understand the business, the whole business, uh, so that people can see how their particular areas of responsibility fit into the overall context. And, and I think you have to put a lot of proactive effort into that. Um, and these are all things that I've become recently become more cognizant about that we need to do and we're putting emphasis on, but uh, um, we, uh, uh, we've got a lot of uh, work to do there, improvements to do there. And, and, and right now we're not in the, I, I, I'd be not being, I, I wouldn't be being honest if I said we've got this figured out. I've yet to talk to anyone who's who 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 would say that they have it a hundred percent figured out. It seems like it's one of those things that you're just always working on, right? Yeah, uh, I think it's uh, it's an it's an ongoing process. Maybe maybe a year from now, uh, it, it, um, I might have some more concrete uh, answers for you, Bill, <laughs> on this one. Now, one of the interesting things um, as we talk about. The, the D to C space, when you look at people in the mattress industry, right, Casper, Purple, Lisa, um, there were two elements. They brought a you know, fresh marketing approach, but also they fundamentally changed the delivery paradigm. They were able to take a product that's big and bulky and compress it into a very easy kind of, ease, much easier to deliver um, format. You're dealing with much more um, difficult product, right? There's only so much you can compress a bed or only so much you can compress <laughs> or, or re-engineer a sofa. It's still a pretty big piece. Um, mm -hmm. What have you learned about that logistics uh, space and does, how has that, has that impacted your product design? Do you, do you start with oh. how it ships? Oh, we've learned so much. I mean, I remember, um, I remember our first container of shipments and it came into the dock and went out to customers. And I think our damage rate was like 25%. And uh, uh, I remember that uh, all kinds of issues, uh, uh, people struggling to get delivery, et cetera. So th this log logistics is a huge, huge beast here. You can't FedEx UPS this stuff. Uh, unless you really um, uh, do um, RTA and break it down, but then unless your RTA and broken down furniture, uh, knockdown furniture is really, really smartly done, the, the inconvenience of assembly is really high and the quality of what the customer gets. Uh, so we obviously didn't go this direction. We went in the direction of actually solving this logistics piece. Uh, and yes, it definitely, it factors into product design for us. Uh, unless we're convinced we have a great logistic solution to deliver this product accurately on time without it being broken, 
to the customer, we don't pursue uh, a product. And a classic example for us is today, we don't do marble dining tables. Um, uh, it's something that we see a big opportunity in and we're working on it, but we haven't yet figured out a solution to deliver it uh, in a way where it gets to our customers, uh, it's convenient for them to unpack and put it together. It gets there in one piece. It gets there while our people don't have to break their backs getting it to them. Uh, that's the other part that I think is hugely important in this industry. There needs to be a strong safety culture because these things are heavy. Um, uh, so, uh, so huge uh, things get factored in product design very, very critically. Uh, packaging, uh, all our products have custom packaging that we've designed in-house. Um, our damage rate today is, I think, a quarter percent, something like that. Uh, so one out of, you know, what is that? Uh, one out of 200 pieces. Uh, I don't know if I'm doing my math right there, but it's really, I'm a really low. And... You can't ask me math. I'm a writer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and I'm and I'm and I'm getting old. The fact that I couldn't do that calculation on the fly, but. Um, but uh, uh, so, so we take pride in all these uh, factors, and definitely you have to tie it back at the start in the in into the way the product is designed and built, and in the way the packaging is designed and built, and and in the way the logistics procedures for that product are designed and built. Now, you, you mentioned that you're you're doing your own delivery. When you say that, do you mean that you have? third-party deliverers that work for you in all of those places or that you've started to add in your own um, trucks, drivers, those things? No, we have our own trucks, our own drivers, uh, our own helpers, our own teams. Uh, we call it ADT, article delivery teams, active in Los Angeles, New York, Seattle, and Vancouver. Uh, uh, and it's, it's just an area we're tremendously excited about as to... Uh, what can we be doing to really delight our customers and make it easy for them and make it a delightful experience for them to get uh, their space furnished the way they want to? There's a lot that we can do there. Um, so uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, um, it's our own teams still. Have you looked at uh, a, a number of other players in the space have started to incorporate brick and mortar locations, either as guide shops or um, as places where people can go and uh, get a sense of the product. To what extent do you see brick and mortar as being part of your growth strategy? Yeah, I think it's very relevant. Uh, I think the numbers are about 10, 11% penetration overall for furniture online buying today, growing 15% year over year, year over year. So that means five years out, you still have 80% plus being bought offline, provided there's no black swan event or some breakthrough that really changes that 15% year over year to something materially higher. Um, uh, so, and, and then that's one aspect. And then secondly, the fact remains that uh, there are some things that technology is going to struggle to answer. Uh, how does this product feel? How does it feel to sit on? How does it feel to, uh, just, how does my hand feel to touch it? Uh, these are aspects that technology is, 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 is ways from, from addressing. And those are, those are real needs that customers do have. Um, so, 
so I think there's a case to be made, uh, and we'll certainly explore it. But for us, the uh, for us the goal would be to do something different, to do something remarkably better, to do something that uh, radically improves on the customer experience that people get today when they go through physical spaces to shop uh, for furniture. So it'll involve some experimentation and innovation, but uh, uh, it, it, it is an area that. Uh, we intend on looking at. You, you've also talked um, publicly in, in other forums about expanding your product offering. How do you see that evolving? Yeah, uh, tremendous opportunities there. Um, you know, the nice thing uh, about what we're doing is uh, we're set up to uh, um, uh, to 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 gain uh, to gain some market momentum in living, dining, bedroom, outdoor, home office, entryways. Um, so uh, we we really want to be uh, having better solutions for people uh, in terms of furnishing their spaces uh, across all these spaces in Rome. Today we're a bit heavily focused on living uh, and and upholsteries and sofas in general. Um, and uh, so we see a lot of greenfield opportunity to make some strong inroads in some of these other rooms and spaces. So, um, so that's 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 exciting for us uh, to uh, uh, to build out our catalog, build out some great products that uh, our end up resonating with our customers and uh, and continue to drive growth for us. How do you figure out? And this has to be a challenge. How? to significantly move the bar enough to justify the entry. When you started, you found a, a you know a margin and efficiency opportunity. You identified a very specific problem and then identified the solution. Um, is it now, as you go forward and look at other categories, is it simply taking that same solution and applying it? Or do you have to look as each new product category, each new area, say each new room that you look at, um, do you have to look at each of those products and say, how can we engineer a difference in that product or how do we, I mean, I'm just curious yeah. from the standpoint yeah. of how you approach that, um, how yeah, you assess. I, I think that, yeah, I think the general value propositions of a higher quality to price ratio of a better service, faster delivery, higher convenience applies uh, across most of these categories. The core might be a question mark, but you know, it applies to uh, uh, most of these uh, these uh, these categories, um, but we 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 have to be mindful of the context uh, around each one of these categories, and uh, and then make sure we come up with on-point products, um, and the way those products are shot for, and the the customer experience online. Uh, is going to be different for somebody looking for a dining table or a dining set uh, versus a sofa. Um, there's different questions that people have, different needs, different contexts. So understanding that deeply and designing the whole customer experience to deliver on that. Uh, so uh, we do have to take a first principles approach uh, as we expand from category to category. Um, but there are general value proposition applicability across these areas. So if people were to watch article over the coming year, what are the 
most interesting or important things they should watch for? Uh, uh, you Without know, revealing uh, any secrets, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, I, I mean, I hope we're able to bring a lot more fantastic products that really resonate with our customers, that our customers really love. They feel a need, they feel a desire, they feel a want that they impress our customers, um, that bring delight to our customers. Uh, that's one. And I hope uh, we're able to provide those to our customers in an experience that's delightful, that's easy, that's simple, that saves them a lot of time. And I hope we can save them a lot of money. Um, uh, and, I, and I hope we can continue to earn our customers' trust uh, as we go about building this brand. Okay, now I'm going to ask you my back to the future question. If you could go back to May 2013, <laughs> what would you tell younger Andy, Amir, Sam, and Fraser? <laughs> what would I tell them? All right, you just jumped in the DeLorean. You jumped out. They're sitting down. You're going to stroll into the room, and you're going to say to them, guys, whatever you do, don't or make sure. How do you finish the sentence? Whatever you do, make sure. Um, geez, that's a tough question, Bill. Uh, that's why I saved it for it's last. A it's a combination of so many things. Uh, look, I, I if I had to just pick one sentence here, one phrase, I, I can't help but continuously go back to whatever you do. Don't forget about the customer. Ask what the customer would want. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's so easy to not see that. Uh, and it's a common trap. Um, so, uh, and it's the same thing we repeat today, again and again. I, I, I would just reemphasize that even more. Um, that's not to take away that we made many mistakes and a lot of learnings, but I'd have to put 20, 30 page, maybe memo there to, <laughs> to uh, myself, Andy, Sam and Fraser back in 2013. Uh, well, if you write um, that, I'll print it. <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe, maybe 10 years from now. There we go. We'll have to circle back. Thank you so much for <laughs> taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. It's been a pleasure. All right. My guest this week was Amir Beg from Article. Thank you for joining me.